last Sunday, you might remember I, I turned 60. Remember that? And we were kind of talking about that a little bit. And, and I shared a couple of uh, my birthday cards with you with, the, with this kind of this, eh, I don't know, I, I just put it out there. You would have a whole year to look for, uh, you're on a really old card. You know, those kind of, you're really old now cards. And uh, just thought that would be fun, look for a year, see what comes up. Uh, when I turn 61, we'll share your, your findings. Well, somebody couldn't wait. So this week, I get, I get this birthday card. My birthday's already done. I get this birthday card, and it's a beautiful card. It's got a picture of Tokwitz Rock on it, and it's a local artisan, and so it looks really innocent on the front, right? You open it up, and it says, Dear Pastor Tim, Actually, some things are older, but not by much. <laughs> some things are older than Talkwitz Rock, but no, yeah, okay. All right, so you kind of get the idea. You've got a year to look, or you can create your own. Whatever you'd like to do, we'll have some fun thinking about growing old together. But that's not why you're here this morning. You're here to enjoy what God has for you from his word, as well as all the other places we've been together. So I'll invite you to reach into your bullets and pull out this little note page uh, if you haven't done that. And if you'll take your Bible and turn with me to the New Testament book of James, chapter 1. It's near the end of your uh, Bible, near the, near the back side. If you get around Hebrews or First Peter, you're going to be close to the book of James, chapter 1. If you need a Bible this morning, you got out without yours, just raise your hand. We'll be glad to share God's, uh, a copy of God's word with you. How many of you have read the Bible from cover to cover over the course of your Christian life? Yeah, most of us have done that. Perhaps it happened during a really short season. Uh, you just really focused in on that. Or maybe you took up one of those uh, through the Bible in a year uh, reading strategies. But my question really is, have you read through the Bible at least once in your Christian life? And the reason I ask that is because if you have done that, church family, then, then you have been exposed by some counts to more than 3,500 promises of God to us. Promises that he makes to you, promises that he makes to me. And, and in these mornings together, in this time, we are spending time with these promises, standing on the promises. That's the name of the series together. And Today, as you can tell from the little note page that you have in front of you, we're going to take up the promise of God's wisdom together. We've shared the promise of eternal life, guidance, victory, answered prayer. Last time, it was the promise of God's presence. Well, today, it is the promise of God's wisdom given to us for the toughest times in our lives. You've made your way to uh, James's little letter here. And here's how the first 12 verses of this book read out of the English Standard Version, which is what I'm using this morning. Yours might vary a little bit, but here's what we got. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Perseverance, steadfastness. I memorized this a different version. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will 
be given him. What is that? That's a promise from God, isn't it? But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Church family, let's just commit our time in the word to the Lord. And Father, it's a joy to uh, hear the pages turn as uh, your people run to the book of James this morning. And we look at your word and we know it to be uh, the, the place where truth lives. You have given us your word that we might not only know you and know Jesus and, and how to have life eternal through faith in him, but Lord, we get to know how to better live this life for you, to be effective in our living out of our faith. And so this is part of how you do that. You take us into your word and you teach us. And I would pray that your spirit would, would just have his way with us this morning. Be pleased to use me to, to just uh, draw your people's attention to those things that you would have for them today. But Lord, help me to stay out of the way of what you would want for them. We thank you for our time in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, just the briefest of introductions as we step into James's letter. James is the pastor of a church. He's the pastor of the church in Jerusalem in the first century. And he's a key leader in the early church. And he is passionate. He is driven. Some might even say he is consumed by the conviction that anyone who makes the claim to be a follower of Jesus should be and in fact must be living a life and a lifestyle of faith that is consistent with that claim to be a Jesus follower. Otherwise, James would say, your faith is it's just a five-letter word. It's not real. It's fake. It's phony. His passion to see Christians consistently and conspicuously living what they are, faith followers of the Lord Jesus, compels him to write this intensely practical little five-chapter letter. And he writes it, verse 1 says, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Or maybe your version says the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. So right away we know that James is writing to Jewish Christians. The 12 tribes refer to the Jewish Christians who in all likelihood at one time were a part of his church family there in Jerusalem. But intense religious persecution for believing in the Lord Jesus, his death, his burial, his resurrection, uh, has driven many of these Jewish Christians out of Jerusalem, out of the whole region of Judea, and literally into other countries, uh, into the Mediterranean world. And so these are Christians who are dispersed all over the place. And James's letter is a circular letter that will fall into many hands in faraway places. Apparently, word had gotten back to James after some time that some of these professing Christians, though, who are admittedly going through some really tough times, they've lost their homes, they've lost their jobs, they've lost uh, their families because they've been disowned uh, for following Jesus, and so this persecution has left them in a really tough spot. But James has learned that as they've gotten away 
from their church family, and they're all scattered around. Some of them are no longer living for Jesus as they once did. In other words, they, they may be holding to the name Christian, but they're not reflecting clearly a life with Jesus in their lives. And James is deeply concerned because a faith that talks but doesn't walk is a faith that doesn't work. That pretty much would sum up the whole book. It didn't work in the first century. It doesn't work in the 21st century either. We can't be claiming Jesus as our Savior and Lord and not be living under his lordship. Would you agree with that? Of course. If we think we can, we're fooling ourselves. Talking a Christian faith but not living it doesn't work, and it certainly isn't going to attract other people to the person of Jesus. They're not going to look at our lives and say, hey, I want what you've got. If we're not living our faith, right? Day to day, in and out of of all that life brings. And I'm reminded of what the Apostle Paul said to the Christians at Corinth. He says this in uh, 2 Corinthians 13, 5. We'll put it up on the screen. Paul says, examine yourselves, Christian. Examine yourself to see whether you are of the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. What Paul was saying to these Christians was, hey, look at your life and see if, if your faith is really living, being lived out of your life. And so if, if Paul can be said to give the exhortation here in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, well, then James is the guy who brings the application. He administers the test in his little letter, his five-chapter letter. He calls his readers to carefully evaluate the authenticity of their faith. And so over the course of this letter, James will, will call his first century readers to look into no less than ten different areas of their life and ask the question, is my faith showing up in that area of my life? Evaluate your life, Christian, in these ten or so different areas. Is the faith I claim to be living really being lived out? Am I that devoted follower of Jesus that I profess to be? So with that as some background and directed by the Holy Spirit, the very first area that James wants to explore with his friends is the whole area of trials that come into our lives. Look at verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith, there's that word, testing, the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, or maybe your version says endurance. James goes straight to an area that he knows everybody's going to be able to identify with. Trials, tough times, hard seasons. Can you relate? Yeah? Yeah, you've been there? Are you there right now? <laughs> maybe, maybe you are. One way that we can test the genuineness of our faith, the authenticity of our faith in, the, in Jesus, is to see how it holds up when it's put into life's pressure cooker. When our faith faces trials and hardships and unexpected turns and heartbreaking losses and bitter disappointments, does my faith show up in such times? And not only does it show up and survive, but does it thrive? Does it grow in those times? When life's trials come, everything from hurricanes to health issues, disappointments to, to deaths, overdue bills to bullies at school, 
uh, broken down vehicles to broken down relationships. All the ways that life puts pressure on us. When those trials come, what do we do? How does it work? Hopefully, and this is where James wants to go with us, hopefully we're going to lay claim to a promise that our God has made to us for just those kinds of times. A promise that he will be faithful to keep because he cannot break a promise. And it is the promise of wisdom. Wisdom for the trials of our life. Now on your note page, before we get to that promise, James has a few things to share with us about trials in general. Some truths about trials that apparently the Holy Spirit uh, believes are important enough for us to, to be aware of and to recognize. First, James says, recognize, verse 2, that life trials are going to be what? They're going to be inevitable. Would you agree with that? Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials. James doesn't say if, does he? He says when you meet trials. None of us ever needs to wonder if trials are going to be in our future, right? No need to wonder that. They're going to be there. No one needs to wonder if I've, you know, I've, I've really had a tough life, but it's all behind me now. Smooth sailing. We don't need to wonder. Trials are here, and they are here to stay. Check out two verses, one from the Old, one from the New Testament, that just affirm this truth that we already all know. James, or Job 5, 7, and this is a guy who would know about trials. He says, man is born to trouble as surely as the sparks fly up from a fire. You can count on them in your life. In other words, and Peter will write in 1 Peter 4.12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Don't be surprised. Trials aren't strange. They are inevitable. Everyone gets to go here. No exceptions. What an uplifting bit of news. Pastor Tim, really appreciate that thought. Actually, it's James and the Holy Spirit. Got to blame them. Then James says this. Life's trials are unpredictable. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials. That word meet, or maybe your Bible uses the word face or encounter. It's from a Greek word that means to fall into unexpectedly. And so this is the very same word that Jesus uses when he tells the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10. And he says that a man was traveling on the road to Jericho and he fell into the hands of robbers. That was an unexpected happening in that guy's life. He wasn't looking for that. Boom, it came uh, in an unexpected, unpredictable way. And every Christian must recognize that the trials are going to come and they're not going to fit into our plans, right? They just aren't because that's the nature of trials. Six months ago, Lisa and I come home from a, a few hours off the hill. It's dark and uh, we open the front door and we hear water running. And we didn't leave the water on. Never a good thing when that happens. I'll just let you know. A filter in the kitchen sink had broke, and for we don't know how long, but long enough, there was water everywhere. And we're just now closing in on the final repairs to all of that damage done almost seven months ago. In our wildest dreams, we never would have predicted that that would happen. But that's trials, isn't it? 
They, they are unpredictable. And then James reminds us that they are also varied. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of what? Well, various kinds, various kinds. Life's trials are going to come in every size and and shape and color and degree that we can imagine. And then an infinite number more that we can't imagine as well. Unfortunately, we don't have to personally experience every possible trial that there is. And aren't we glad for that? But there will be plenty of trials in a lifetime. So James says life's trials are inevitable. They're unpredictable. They're limitless in their variety and their form. And then he adds, and here's where it turns positive. Then he adds, they can also be incredibly productive. Finally, a bit of positive news. Verse 2 says again, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces. It produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete Lacking in nothing. In other words, James says, trials in your life and in my life, they have a purpose. Do you believe that? They do have a purpose. God has designs in mind for us whenever he permits a trial to become part of our story. There's a, there's a design behind that, a purpose, which means that before we can grasp what the purpose is, we've got to give up this very natural inclination that we're born with to see our trials as invaders into our lives, to see them as intruders, as nasty enemies to be rid of just as quickly as we can. That's how we typically look at trials. They are the enemy. James says authentic Christian faith sees life's trials as tests. Tests specifically designed by God to develop us spiritually to produce in our lives pastor chuck swindoll that's a name you might recognize he says this rather than viewing trials as our enemies we should look upon these tests as what as servants that bring about the circumstances needed to help us grow now honestly church family i have never really spent much time thinking about the trials in my life as servants, servants in the employ of God that he has dispatched to serve me. I don't look at trials like that typically. Do you? As a servant dispatched from God to serve you in a good way, in a positive way. But that's what that's what James is saying here. That's what the Holy Spirit is saying through James. That's how he sees this. And brothers and sisters, our God is not interested in watching our faith get torpedoed by a hardship or by persecution or a financial disaster or a health crisis or a relational meltdown. God takes no pleasure in seeing our faith tank in the midst of those those trials. What he desires, though, what he desires is that we would become different people because of that. And so the key to understanding these trials is to understand the word testing in verse 3. It's a word that comes from the Greek word dokimos. And it means to assess and to pass as approved. It's actually the word that is found etched into the bottom of many ancient pieces of pottery that archaeologists in the Middle East have unearthed. Dokimos, it meant 
that a piece of pottery had, had gone through the furnace and it had gone through the furnace without cracking. It was in great shape. It comes out of the furnace and it gets this stamp on the bottom of it. Dokimos. Assessed and passed as approved. And James' readers would instantly have understood that this is what he's trying to point out. That God uses trials as the furnace for us. His clay pots. We're called clay pots in scripture. And, and his expectation is that we will... We'll go through these fiery trials, the furnace, if you will, and then God, on the back side of that, will inscribe on us, Dokimos, you've passed, assessed as approved, because you have come out better. You've, you've made it through that fiery furnace and trial. You're stronger now. Your faith is stronger because of the trial than if you'd never had the trial. Now, James says at the end of verse 3 that God's initial purpose in every trial is to produce steadfastness. Maybe your version says perseverance. Maybe it uses the word endurance. This word comes from combining two Greek words together that mean to hold up under pressure. That's what, it's, that's what it means. And so it's the idea of a person getting stronger and stronger every time a trial is faced and then pushed through to the end. There's a story told about a dog that gets at the heart of what this, this word means. seems there was an old dog who fell into a farmer's well. And there really was no way to rescue the dog. At least the farmer didn't think so. And so he decided that the best thing that he could do was to fill up that old well with dirt. Now, that would remove the hazard, but it would also bury the dog, put it out of its misery. So he proceeds to shovel dirt into the well. When the farmer begins to shovel the dirt into the well, well, the dog becomes hysterical. But as the farmer kept on shoveling and the dirt kept hitting the dog back again and again, a thought came to this old dog. Each time a shovel full of dirt hit his back, the dog would shake off the dirt and then step up onto the dirt. And so blow after blow of dirt, the dog would shake it off and step up, shake it off and step up. No matter how painful those shovelfuls of dirt were, the old dog just fought the panic and just kept on shaking it off and stepping up. Well, eventually, as you can imagine, though battered and exhausted, the dog was able to escape the well and continue to live. What could have buried him, the point is that what could have buried him actually benefited him. Steadfastness is this ability to take the, the new shovelful of a particular trial, absorb the blow, hold up under it, and then step up on a new ground, having endured that trial. Steadfastness. But developing spiritual toughness or steadfastness or perseverance is just the initial purpose that God has behind his trials. His ultimate purpose, according to verse 4, is to bring about maturity, to bring about a complete spiritual maturity in your life or my life. Let steadfastness have its full effect, verse 4 says, that you may be perfect or mature and complete, lacking in nothing. That word complete, it comes from a Greek word, holokleros. We get our word holograph from this particular word. And what is a holograph? Well, a holograph is a 360 degree, three dimensional view of an object. And so God's ultimate purpose behind our trials 
is that they will produce in us a life that no matter from what direction you look at it, people are going to see Jesus. That's the purpose. That's the big picture. That we will, inf- we will reflect an impossible-to-miss faith in the Lord Jesus as we move through our trials. At the bottom of your note page, though we don't have time to really unpack these, I thought it might be a help to you for a later time to just realize that there are some other purposes that Scripture says that God has for our trials. And, and, and what I share these for is because every time we step into the furnace of a life trial, our Heavenly Father has a comprehensive agenda. He's got a plan. He's got a purpose designed to touch the full 360 degrees of our life so that ours is going to be a strong, mature faith on the backside. An authentic faith, a real faith, not a fake, phony, fair weather kind of faith. So from that list, not only does God use trials to strengthen our faith, as we've been talking about, he uses them to humble us, to lessen our dependence on worldly things, to help us look up with an expectant hope, to reveal what we really love. Number six, life trials teach us to value God's blessings, and they work to develop us for even greater service. And then because God always is thinking about others, he uses trials in our lives to prepare us to be able to better help others when they go through their trials because we've gone through it already. Some really good purposes. And there are many more that God would have in mind than these for every trial that you and I go through. However, it's really important that we recognize these truths about trials, especially that they are for a purpose. We really need to understand that. Otherwise, we spend our time in the trial asking, why me, Lord? Why does it always happen to me? Right? Does that ever happen to you? Do you ever say that in the midst of a trial? Why me, Lord? Why is it always me? That's where we go. Instead of asking, what do you want me to learn? If we realize there's a purpose for our trial, that's the question we want to be asking. What do you want me to learn so that, so that you can do what you want to do with me next in this journey of faith? That's the purpose for our trials. That reflects an intact, mature, growing, difference-making kind of faith. If you were to take just a moment and honestly reflect on how you look at the trials in your life right now, How would you say that you view them most of the time? Are they your enemies? Are they the evil intruders that need to be banished from your life as quickly as you possibly can get rid of them? Is that how you look at your trials? Or are they God's servants that bring about the circumstances that are needed to help you grow and mature into the follower of Jesus that God wants you to be? How are you looking at your trials? If you had to admit admit right now that, well, most of the time, you know, honestly, Tim, I, I look at my trials as the enemy, then I would just say you're in really good company because that's what most of us tend to do. Rare indeed is the Christian who does not struggle in this place. But this is really where James' spirit-inspired instruction becomes not only invaluable but, but really precious to us as well. Why? Well, if you flip that little note page over, this is where we learn that when trials come, we are to make a request of God. 
we get to ask him for what? For wisdom. And he promises, he promises to give it to us. It's verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. What is that? That's a promise. That's a promise. This is such a cool verse. James says, when that unexpected trial blows into your life, you don't have to just sit there and feel doomed to failure or worse, thinking that God must not like you anymore and that's why this is happening to you. Or even worse than that, you just chuck your faith all together because you're tired of, of it not, not going the way you want. James says you can ask God for wisdom for that trial. And his promise is, he will give it to you. He will give it to you. Now, the context here, this is very important. The context here defines the kind of wisdom that James is talking about. This verse oftentimes gets yanked out of context. And it is used to say that we can just pray to God and ask for the wisdom to be able to do life better. Right? We, we go to this verse, and that's what we use it for. We, we say, oh, this is where I'm supposed to pray to God and ask for the wisdom to do life better. And, and uh, the kind of wisdom that we might find, for example, in the book of Proverbs, a whole book devoted to wisdom living instruction. That is not at all where James is at in this moment. The wisdom here in verse 5 is a wisdom that is directly related to the trial that we're going through in the moment. And we are to ask for that. This is a focused kind of wisdom, a, a specific wisdom that will enable us to see our trial from God's perspective and through his eyes. James says God wants to give us copious amounts. Note that word generously there in verse 5. Copious amounts of his perspective on our trial. He wants us to see our trial from his point of view. Without his wisdom, without his divine perspective, enduring or persevering and having a faith that's going to hold up under fire and it's going to stay in there for the long haul, that gets tougher and tougher and tougher. And God says, I want to give you my perspective on your particular trial. Just ask me and I will do that for you. Is that not an awesome promise? Man. In fact, if the truth be told, for many, many professing Christians whose faith falters or fails in the pressure cooker of an intense trial, it fails at this precise point. That Christian failed to ask God for his perspective on that trial. They never asked for his wisdom. They forgot or, or didn't know they could. His promise. He wants us to see our trial through his eyes. And when we don't ask and we don't get that, that wisdom from him in the midst of our trial, then we're left only with our own limited, puny, earthbound perspective. And then we become overwhelmed or frustrated or discouraged or angry. We give up thinking that God has failed us. God is so ready to give us his perspective. Verse 5 says, without reproach. Without looking for some reason not to give it to us. How cool is that? 
In other words, if, if we're, we're neck deep in a difficult trial and we come to God and we ask for his perspective, his wisdom, he's never going to say, sorry, come back later. Or, 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 no, no, you took too long to ask. Time's up. You're on your own. No way. If you're going through some really difficult trial right now, right this moment, you walked in the doors with it. Ask God to give you his perspective on your trial. Because he says, I'll do that. I'll give you my point of view. I promise. James will write in just a few moments in this same book, James chapter 4, verse 2. He'll say, you do not have, Christian, because why? Because you didn't ask. Ask. David will write after going through a really tough season in his life. In my distress, in my trial, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. From his temple, he heard my voice and my cry to him reached his ears. What did David do in the midst of his trial? He asked. What did God do? He answered. To his Jewish brothers and sisters, scattered and persecuted, James says, your trials are doable, but you must ask God for his point of view, his perspective, his wisdom. So the question we would ask is, am I doing that? Are you doing that? That's part of a mature faith. Request God's wisdom. And then James adds, rely fully on this one whom you're asking. Don't doubt when you ask for his wisdom. Don't don't doubt that he's going to give it to you. And that's part of faith as well. Verse 6. But let him ask in faith. Circle that word. Write the word trust somewhere nearby. And connect the two words with a line. Because that's what this means. Let, but let him ask in trust or in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. It's quite a word picture, isn't it? It's a picture of, of a Christian who's, who's tossed around like a wave in the ocean, restless and tortured. Church family, the oldest temptation that there is, is the temptation to doubt God. Would you agree with that? We find it for the very first time in Genesis chapter 3, don't we? God clearly communicates to Adam and Eve, hey, you can eat anything you want in this entire garden except this one tree. Don't eat from it. What does Satan do? He shows up and he says, has God really said that you can't eat from that tree? Did he really say that? And what is he doing? He's planting the seed of doubt, isn't he? Ah, that's the oldest trick trick in, in Satan's deadly bag of tricks. Doubt. And that fact is not lost on James. He's really saying here that the one who professes faith in Jesus and calls himself a Christian and then enters a tough life trial doubting God reveals that their faith is either weak or immature or perhaps it isn't even faith at all. Whatever the case, into such a doubting environment, the Holy Spirit says here through James that God can't bring the wisdom, the perspective or the power that he would like to bring into our trials because we doubt him. Hebrews 11.6 says, without faith it is what? It's impossible to please him. So in the midst of a, of a real barn burner of a, of a trial in your life, 
Are you, am I, are we really relying fully on our God? If we have full confidence in him, no matter what, no matter how long the trial lasts or how much it hurts or how much it costs, if we are trusting him, he promises, promises to give us his wisdom. Isn't that awesome? That is so good to know. We will have his divine perspective. Now, sandwiched between verse 8 and verse 12 is this little section of 9, 10, and 11 that just kind of seemed to be disconnected. How did they get in there, we wonder? Um, I mean, really what James is doing here is he's leveling the playing field between the poor and the rich. And he's saying, hey, you both are saved by the same Jesus. Realize that, that you're rich in Jesus if you're poor, and don't be relying on your wealth if you're, if you're in Jesus because that can be taken away tomorrow. He levels the playing field. Trials come to the poor and to the rich. And then, and then when they do come, when they come, faith will be conspicuously evident in those who recognize the truth about trials, who request divine perspective, who rely fully on the Lord, and then lastly, those who rejoice in God's purposes and his promise. I don't mean to insult your powers of observation, but you'll notice that I didn't say rejoice in the trial, right? Did you catch that? I did not say that. Rejoice in the trial. You ever heard that? That we're supposed to do that? Rejoice in God's purposes and promise in the trial. There's a world of difference between those two thoughts, isn't it? This takes us clear back up to verse 2. You thought we might have jumped over this, but we didn't. James started out his letter, verse 2, saying, Count it all what? Joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. He doesn't say, hey, be overjoyed that you're going through a severe trial. That would be weird, right? Wouldn't that be, that'd be weird? Oh, good, I get to suffer some more. Please bring on more trials because they're so much fun. No. He's not saying that. He's not saying put on a fake, phony, plastic smile while your trial rips you up one side and down the other. He's not saying that either. God lives in the truth because he's the God of truth. And the truth is that trials are hard. They, they hurt. They're unpleasant. Nobody who's doing life in Jesus biblically goes out looking for trials. For James, the joy is not in the trial. It's, what, it's joy in what the trial will accomplish in your life. When you have the wisdom of God, the perspective of God, because you asked him for it, that's where the joy comes. Oh, Lord, I get it. You've got some reason for this. I may not fully understand it, but I understand you. You've got a purpose for this trial in my life. I'm trusting you with it. And there's joy that I can have in the midst of my trial because it's not for nothing. It's going to accomplish the complete persevering, maturing faith that God wants in my life. Now, in verse 12, he ends this first test with the very same thought that he does in verse 2. Blessed, joyful is the one who perseveres under trial because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. So we get two promises in this passage. We get the promise of wisdom in verse 5, now life in verse 12. 
James borrows the image of an athlete who receives the victor's crown because the athlete has persevered, fought through, endured to the very end, and made it first over the finish line. And James says eternal life is the crown, Christian. It awaits all who have persevered and not given up in all the trials, proving that their faith is the real deal. It's genuine. It's authentic. Do I possess that authentic, genuine faith today? To answer that question, brother, sister, we may need to look no further than how we do trials. Is my faith the real deal? How do I do the trials in my life? How do I do them? Do I recognize the truth about trials? Do I, do I request God's wisdom? Do I rely fully on Him? Do I rejoice that He's got a purpose and a plan? Charles Spurgeon, great preacher of the 1800s, writes, I've always looked back to times of trial with a kind of longing, not to have them return, but to feel the strength of God as I felt it then, to feel the power of faith, as I felt it then, to hang on to God's powerful arm as I hung on to it then, and see God at work as I saw him then. I don't want to go through that trial again, but I want all the benefits that come from the trial itself. Spurgeon can say that because God keeps his promise. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. Amen and amen. Let's pray together. Wow, there's a lot to take in here, Heavenly Father. The, the cool thing is that everybody in this room can identify with what James is talking about here. We all are in really tough spots at various times in our life. Thank you for helping us to better understand our trials. More importantly, to better understand you in the midst of our trials, that you have design, you have purpose. Nothing is wasted. It all moves towards that great goal of maturing our faith so that when we see you face to face, we will not be ashamed. Having received the crown of life, having endured to the very end. Thank you for that. Before we would wrap it up, Lord, I just want to appeal to you for those who would be in this room right now who would say, man, I am in the pressure cooker of life. I am in one of those trials that, that's been talked about. This is where I'm at. I pray for that one right now. Lord, would you minister your kindness and your grace and your mercy? Would you allow these truths to just settle into their heart? that they would find a joy today in the midst of their hurt, their pain, their fear. Would you be pleased to do that? To give them your wisdom, your perspective, your point of view to carry them through this very difficult time. We can ask that of you because you've invited us to do so. Thank you. Thank you in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen and Amen.